Are you a scaling SaaS founder? Ready to make the leap from leading a team to leading an organization? Join us each week as we refill your think tank with actionable tips and strategies from great business minds you know and those you don't know yet. This is SaaS Fuel with your host, five-time entrepreneur, SaaS founder, and globetrotting adventurer, Jeff Maines. Welcome back to the SaaS Fuel Podcast, where organizational alignment is the magic that happens when everyone's oars dip into the water at just the right moment, propelling us forward with purpose and precision. I'm your host, Jeff Maines. I help B2B SaaS founders grow from traction to scale. Here, growth is more than just numbers. It's about crafting a future-proof company, premium valuation, and leaders who build businesses of significance while living epic, adventurous lives. I had a great conversation with a SaaS founder this week about purpose. He read my book, Small Fish, Big Pond, and Simon Sinek, Start With Why. And they're using the process from my book. Get the leadership team together to talk about the company's origin story and distill the why behind the company, plus each person's personal story on the leadership team and their why. Very, very cool stuff. Then, of course, use that personal story, company story, and connect it with your ideal client, team, partners, and, and everybody else around your organization. And purpose touches every single part of the organization and drives all the yes-no decisions. Now, it is the guiding principle. We teach a lot about that and how purpose aligns your team in a dozen ways. And one of those lets them make the same decisions that you would or your executive team would. Or, you know, just like I said, you would as a founder even when you're not there. And that's incredibly free. I was really impressed with how they did it and the depth that they went to. No surface answers because it's so easy just to stay right there at the surface and, okay, check the box, go on. And, and they just did amazing. It's so good. They went deep and came out with some awesome answers. And I can't wait to see how they use it in their marketing. And for privacy, I won't share it here except to say they found some deep anti-establishment rebel personas, kind of typical of founders, which was really, really fun talking about that. And they are absolute warriors for their clients. I mean, just all in commitment, kind of like Chick-fil-A for the, the SaaS industry. Yeah, I've talked a lot about that before. Service levels that just make you say, wow. And, and I love that. But I was reminded about the power of purpose. And just, you know, again, refreshed. I mean, not just any purpose. We're talking about like your big, hairy, audacious purpose. Would that be the BHAP? Uh, kind of like a big, hairy, audacious goal, but purpose. But it's the thing that gets you leaping out of bed at dawn to chase the dream. You know, purpose has become a buzzword in business. Everybody claims they have one and it's usually plastered on some poster in the lobby. But, uh, you know, truth bomb here, most companies don't really know their real purpose, their why that unites a team, attracts ideal customers, and literally changes the world. Yesterday was MLK Day, and I actually started this year reading a biography of Martin Luther King Jr., and there was a man who was absolutely committed to God and committed to purpose, absolutely unstoppable. I mean, just some of his speeches, some of the things that, that he said, I mean, incredibly profound. He has lots of memorable quotes, but one that's always resonated with me he said, you know, if you can't fly, then run. If you can't run, then walk. And if you can't walk, then crawl. But whatever you do, you have to keep moving forward. I mean, now that is living your purpose for sure. So how do you find and unleash your purpose within your company? 
Yeah, a deep dive is in my book. Grab that, and there, there's videos and worksheets and everything to walk you and your team through it. And uh, that is all right there in the book uh, available for you. But here's a simple three-step formula. First, get clear on the impact your company can make. I think that's really important that purpose is out there. It's not in here. And I'm talking about the legacy you leave and the dent in the universe from doing what you do best. How are you going to make impact in your clients' lives? What are you going to do to you know, make change in the world? So take time to envision that change, the real change you could create in people's lives and communities. You know, how will the world be better if you achieve your grand vision? Next, craft a rally cry that galvanizes your team around the shared quest. This rally cry becomes your North Star. It's a unifying mantra that guides every single decision and action. It's real important that actions, and they're not just a decision. If there's no action, you might as well stick it on a poster and put it in your lobby and forget about it. But it drives action. Make it bold and defiant in the face of complacency. When your team understands and shares your purpose, they're more motivated, engaged, and effective ambassadors for your brand. And I love that word, ambassadors. Think about that. Think about your team as ambassadors out there to the world and all of that, the connotations around what an ambassador is and does and how they represent the, the kingdom out there in the world. And number three, what we want to do is then shout it from the rooftops. That rally cry, shout it from the rooftops through stories, events, experiences that let people feel and engage with that purpose firsthand. Bring your rally cry to life through powerful narratives, culture shaping, and purpose-driven initiatives. Make sure everyone who touches your company can connect to the impact. So, so important. I think every single founder should have a, a cause and th be thinking about doing something more and impact. Uh, I mean, certainly for your customers, your clients, but beyond that as well. Business is driven by a strong purpose, grow faster, and they're more profitable. But they can achieve more than just profits. They can make a difference. And I think that all of us as founders in business, we should be looking at how we can make a difference. Your purpose is your story your rally cry, and your banner. Wield it with conviction and watch as it transforms your business landscape, drawing in those who believe in what you stand for. So here's to finding our purpose, communicating it passionately, and creating an impact that goes way beyond the bottom line. Let's lead with purpose and see how it shapes our journeys. Our expert last week was Kenneth Berger, who coaches startup leaders to prevent burnout, take a stand for the life they want, and leave their unique mark on the world. We talked about how to stay mentally sharp, prevent burnout, and the Big Ask Blueprint. And that's Ask, A-S-K, the Big Ask Blueprint. And our founder last Tuesday was Andrea Waltz, co-founder of Courage Crafters and best-selling author of Go For No which revolutionizes rejection and sales in business. I love counterintuitive strategies, and Andrea brought fun and gamification to sales and leadership as well. And we all need that. We need more gamification and fun in our lives. So if you missed either one of those episodes, go back and give them a listen. My guest today is Chris Strahl, CEO and co-founder of Knapsack, an enterprise software platform that unites product, design, and engineering teams in one workspace. 
offering a single source of truth for collaborative digital product development. Very cool to bring those things together. And in addition to reshaping digital product development, Chris also hosts the industry's top design podcast called the Design System Podcast. Welcome a uniter and aligner, Chris Strahl. Hey, Chris, welcome to SAS Fuel. Hey, Jeff, thanks for having me. Well, tell me a little bit about Knapsack. I mean, how did that come to be? You know, what inspired you and Evan to, to start the company? Like a, a light bulb moment or, you know, coffee induced brainstorming sessions? What's the scoop? Yeah, I mean, Evan really is the the um, the visionary person around the product. Um, but one of the things like like many visionary technical founders, uh, he needed a, a partner like that typical, you know, hacker hustler uh, comic yeah. that is, is written frequently about. Um, but it all came to be largely because Evan had a captive audience on a ski lift one day. Um, and so we had worked together previously at an agency um, collection of, of friends and other coworkers in that agency. Um, and one of the things that we had, had been struggling with was the need to have a round trip of design to code for every single digital product in an entire company's ecosystem. Um, you know, our job at the time was building fairly large scale web platforms. So how do I launch lots of different products on a common web platform? But that still came with this baggage of, of I have to go through a full design to code round trip every time. And that mm. takes time, yeah. it takes effort. And oftentimes as the people that were, were making that visual design a reality on the web, we would end up blocked on designers or backend development or any number of other things. And so we started building these systems that were essentially an abstraction for um, uh, some future front end code we would deliver on. And without knowing it, we were we were building design systems. And so, yeah. um, you know, it was it was an early kind of peek at a way of using patterns um, to build common elements of UI for lots and lots of products all at once. So instead of having like there's a, a button for product A, a button, a button for product B and a button for product C, you'd have one button and then you could pass a variable that would brand it as product A, product B or product C. Um, that at nice. its core is like when we talk about patterns, what we, what we mean. That would significantly speed up design time. And you had a, that same look and feel across across products as well. Yeah, there's kind of two reasons why people care about stuff like this. Um, the first is is uh, a people problem. And so when you think about like the the idea of enterprise scale for any sort of ecosystem of products, right? Um, most large enterprises have dozens, if not hundreds of products. And being able to apply in some standardized way, uh, an identity, a visual design, et cetera, across products big and small, because there's, most companies have a few products that really matter, and then a whole bunch of products that don't matter as much. Um, and so all of them require a similar level of design investment. And to be able to hold all that in the heads or, or in the workforce is really challenging. You know, If you have three products, you can have like one product manager, and that person can kind of understand how to apply things consistently across three products. But the moment you're at 300 products, like that's not just one person, that's a team of people. And that team of people needs yeah. to figure out a way of working. And really these break down. Um, almost always there's some sort of, of tipping point where just the complexity of that many products in the ecosystem is too difficult to manage. And then change really starts to grind to a halt. Like I wanna update my brand color. Well, if I have to update my brand color across three products, 
I can kind of figure that out in a week or two. If I have to update my brand color across 300 products, like that's a multi-year effort involving hundreds of people that ultimately probably doesn't actually get done 300 times successfully. It probably gets some percentage of that that never actually adopts the new brand color. And it may not even be like a lack of intention. It may be that that like brand that that is, you know, one one hundredth the size of the core brand doesn't even have budget for a design team to make that sort of change. And so by relying more heavily on systems and on patterns, you can make that change centrally and then federate out when that gets adopted across all these different um, uh, parts of your 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 ecosystem. Um, so that, that's like kind of solving the people problem. The second side of it is, is like this tool proliferation problem. And if you think about like a modern product production process, you have, uh, things like VS code and Figma on, on the poles, right? You probably have Atlassian or, or some other project management tool like linear or sauna in there. Um, and then you have all of this other stuff that connects docs, that connects, uh, uh, comments that connects tickets. Um, to all these different really varied and, and disparate work streams. And just knowing exactly what to build when is a really hard problem. Um, yes. And so yes. what Knapsack tries to do is we try to put it all in one place. So instead of, hey, design has their set of tools. Hey, engineering has their set of tools. Hey, product has their set of tools. Put things in one place and still be able to work in your own tools and design like Figma or still be able to go work in, in VS Code or, or Storybook. Or still be able to go like do things in in Atlassian and Confluence to document, but at least aggregate that into one spot, so that when people are talking about I'm building a, a button, I know that this is the design, this is the code, and this is the docs all in one place. That is brilliant. Yeah, bringing that together because so many organizations it, it is it's scattered. Everybody's kind of doing their own thing. They're they're working as hard as they can, and, and they all have great intentions. But then it tries to all come together at the end and. Yeah, you know, the pieces don't necessarily all match up. Totally, and and that people in problem, uh, that people in tool pr proliferation problem, very often people try to hold it all inside their own organization. So they try to think yeah. like, hey, you know, like let me build a bunch of glue code, or let me like create some some custom CMS, or let me do something that is like a very serious hack of Confluence to get everything all together. And the reality is, is it never quite works. Inevitably, you have a design change that doesn't get captured appropriately, and then it ends up um, with a gap in product. Or there's um, an engineer that has to make a change to design, and then getting that design change back upstream becomes really, really challenging. And so that's kind of where Knapsack steps in, is not only do we put everything in one place, we also add a workflow to it that lets you control how that change happens across everything in your ecosystem. So everybody always kind of knows who has the ball, right? Like, hey, there's a design change that needs to end up inside, implemented inside of engineering. Hey, there's an engineering thing that's ready for review and it includes a couple of design changes. That ability to kind of control wow. that workflow creates a lot of trust in the system. And it also makes it so that uh, uh, when people are ready to make a change that's fairly major, like changing a brand color, um, the adoption isn't chaos for that. It's version controlled. You can adopt it however you want. It can roll out to different organizations at different paces. That's really smart. And even something like changing a brand color, and, and this happens all the time, is, hey, we're going to do this, and, and marketing's got this whole campaign, and we need to make this change. And then you've got all these resources and man hours uh, rolled into this project that honestly doesn't really move the needle. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not something. It doesn't create revenue changing the 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 color of a button. Uh, right. So I love that making it that simple and easy and and able to to track. Yeah, and it is interesting, right? A lot of these systems are about removing waste and inefficiency in a process. Yeah. Um, some of them are about direct savings, like hey, spend less on your agency because you can control and manage a lot of this internally now. Or hey, you know, we make a we make it so that there's no designer whose entire job is is to maintain some sticker sheet that every time there's a minor font change uh, or they add another like uh, uh, font size, they have to go update 400 different things in Figma. Like that, um, that ability to take that repetitive work and that wasteful work out of the process lets us all focus on stuff that's way more interesting and way more valuable. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's kind of like uh, CSS, you know, for, for web. You know, you have one place and you change it here and it changes everywhere. And so you're kind of you're kind of that centralized hub for you know design and engineering and product. Yeah, we we kind of laughed at the early the early days of this, right? Because uh, uh, oftentimes we would say like we're the difference between between inline CSS and actually having like proper styling. It's not a perfect metaphor, <laughs> but it's kind of a similar yeah. idea to to what we're trying to accomplish. Uh, it's absolutely brilliant and so needed. And in, in selling to different groups within an organization, you've got product, you have design, you have engineering. Who do you sell to? And was that a challenge initially in figuring that out and you know, finding that product market fit? You know, who's the, who's the buyer? And then you've got these other groups that need to use it too. Yeah, there's kind of two tracks there, right? There's, there's the person that has the pain and the person that has the pockets. Um, and so like the pockets <laughs> yeah. obviously are the things that come with money, right? Um, yeah. And so the people that have the pain inside of, of most of our organizations um, are usually in product. And, and those people yeah, are the, the poor souls that have to make the things that designers make uh, in Figma look like the thing that a user experiences in a web browser or a native app. Um, and, and that as their job is, is a very fraught one because yeah. they don't really own either side of that process, but they're ultimately responsible for it. And so we get a lot of... of product managers or, um, you know, oftentimes UX professionals that have these deeply complex systems for how they make something that represents design intent into user reality. Because at, at their core, they understand that users don't consume Figma files, but knowing what to build is largely about what exists in Figma. And likewise, mm-hmm. like you can't perfectly model everything uh, in Figma that you actually need to build in code but people in code need to understand what to build. And that fraught process is, is oftentimes um, something that, that product people don't actually even believe is solvable. Um, and so then they tend to be our, our loudest, proudest advocates. When it actually comes to who they report to and who signs off on something like this, um, one of the things that is kind of hard is we're usually the first time a company, even a really major enterprise, has SaaS spend related to design systems. And so because it's the first time, very often that's a very high level approval. And there is not a lot of existing proof points inside of the organization. It's also not necessarily clear what we're always replacing. Um, And so oftentimes that that decision maker that we need to reach is a director or VP, sometimes even a C-level inside of the technology organization. And the reason why we typically go to the technology organization is because they understand systems and they understand that systems create automation and reduce waste. And so 
much like how how we used to think about infrastructure, where we'd always buy bespoke servers or we'd buy some sure. sort of like a hosting platform, right? And then all of a sudden we have like, you know, the cloud now and DevOps orchestration and all these other things like Spinnaker and Kubernetes and stuff like that. That transition is very similar to what's happening in the design to code process right now is people are figuring out what what the orchestration of these processes looks like with tools and technology people understand that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. How did you find product market fit uh, initially in, in doing that? Was it something that, that came easily? Because you're talking about design systems and it's something new. And I love that. You know, what are we replacing? Like a, a big mess of stuff. Mm-hmm. So, in, you know, design systems. So is that something that was easy to find or did it take a little bit of, of, of work to, to get those initial that initial traction? Yeah, I, I think that the... I mean, I think it always takes work. I think that like for us, the majority of the work came from us being engineering first, right? Like we had a very engineering centric point of view. Um, And a big part of the reason why we came with an engineering centric point of view is this was founded, this company was founded by the people that did the implementations of design. All of us remember the days of of getting like layered Photoshop files thrown over the wall at us and basically (laughs) saying like that process is terrible. Uh, We should not. And so... The, the product market fit challenge for us came in the idea of if this just exists in code, it's probably not enough. Um, and so it was, you know, first code as like a command line tool and then eventually became code plus docs and then eventually evolved into code plus docs plus design. And it wasn't really until we had all three that we felt like we had something that really met a significant need for our users. And we even in starting with that had our share of stumbles because of the ability to create trust in the system and control change. Um, we worked really closely with Envision in, in the early days. Um, and one of the things that they had was Envision DSM, which was a very design first focused platform that was all about how do you organize design files around components um, and then document those things. Ours kind of did the opposite of that. It was about how you organize code patterns and then document those code patterns. And so what we basically said is like, what if we were able to take some of those capabilities that we see in the organization of those design assets and then do a bunch of things that Envision didn't do, like create really robust version management, create really great workflow. And then that would allow designers and engineers to share a workflow and also share a space where they can both run through that workflow to actually agree on what to build, how to build it, and ultimately the reusable building blocks of, of uh, everything that would become their products. And that understanding of that audience journey took like more than a year. Um, and then also, I think that the other side of it that was product market fit was like, if you look at pretty much everybody in the design system space, everybody is really upper mid-market. Like they're, they're working on... on you know, yes, a couple of big enterprise deals here and there, but there's a lot of folks that work in this space that are much more mid-market driven. Um, they're not finding like like industry-leading companies to go do business with. They're trying to find folks that are willing to spend, uh, you know, some nominal per user fee to get to what their their like outcome is driven on. What we really looked at is we looked at like, where's the pain for this? Well, the pain is at scale. And so right. when we think about like what represents scale, it's the biggest companies in the world. 
And that's who we need to go and approach. And we had thought about a self-serve product for a really long time. One of the biggest complaints that we get all the time is like, I can't just click a button and spin up Knapsack and start using it. Um, and there's a very good reason for that. The very good reason for that is like to be successful at enterprise scale with a product like Knapsack, you have to really understand how it fits inside of a workflow. And that workflow is kind of different every time. And so we went from this initial idea of, hey, we're going to have some opinions about how our people should use our product. And we're going to bake those opinions into a self-service motion. And anybody with a credit card is going to be able to sign up for our app. And we basically said, like, no, that's actually not the way. Like, the, the way is to say, how do we adapt the, the, you know, unopinionated parts of our software to represent an opinionated implementation for any enterprise customer that we uh, uh, can help solve their pain at that scale? It's really, really smart. Do you think that that helped or, or hurts in the, the competition in not having, you know, not being, you know, product led or, you know, sign up anybody? Yeah, I mean, it makes it so that we have to charge a lot more, right? And so when we think yeah. about the the competitive nature of our product, there's a lot of people that are out there that are are, you know, in the low tens of thousands in terms of the price points for this stuff, right? Um, there's even people that are are in the sub ten thousand dollar. Uh, market and you can you can buy a design system from them and and like it's called a design system and and it actually is one to some degree, but how far does that design system actually go and yeah. what are the use cases that, that the design system supports? When you think about the world's biggest leading enterprises, like they don't just want something that creates docs, they don't just want something right. that serves one part of their market or one product. They want to have an ecosystem solution, and that ecosystem solution is about how do you create this pervasive way of working across an entire enterprise? And that's a big daunting problem. Um, yeah. And so when we think about like the, the idea of like, did that help or hurt us? In the, the early parts, you know, we thought a lot more about competitors. We spent a lot more time looking at them. We spent a lot more time seeing the features that they were releasing, doing the stuff that they were doing. And we kind of, I wouldn't say we were necessarily chasing competitive parity, but we were thinking a lot more about it. Now, when we think about like what differentiates us competitively is that like out of hand, we discard about 80% of people that come our way. And the reason why is because they aren't industry leading large enterprise folks. And where our implementations and our product shines is when you have that greater need and you need a team that can support you there and you need to reduce the risk of spending, you know, upwards of, of six, seven figures on a design system because you recognize the value that it will create at scale, and then you need that not to fail. And that's what right. our company is really, really good at, is, is like, if you spend money with us in enterprise, we have an incredible track record of super successful design systems for the world's largest enterprises and leading brands. And that is our real differentiator, is our ability to say, like, use us, and we can make sure that you will be successful. We can make you look good as the person that bought us. And then yeah. we also actually do a lot for your company. Right, there's a, some great lessons in here about you know, saying no to, to revenue that's not ideal fit and, and really focusing on what you know that the real value is. Because you're exactly right. Uh, the, where all the pain is, the greatest pain is in those larger organizations. And the bigger they are, the, the more development teams, the more engineers they have, the bigger their products. I mean, if you have one product, not that big a deal. When you have dozens, hundreds of products, huge, huge deal. 
Yeah, and, uh, like we sometimes joke internally, like we're probably one of our competitors' like best pipelines. <laughs> we say like, hey, you know, if you if you want to use, uh, or if you're looking for a, a design system at the scale or at the depth that you're looking for, it's probably better if you go talk to to one of these other folks, and and we'll give you their number. Um, and and that actually works really well for us because it it makes us spend less time with people that are never going to meet really the revenue requirements of of the way that we work. Um, and are honestly like almost as difficult to sell as a really big enterprise. Sure. And a lot more difficult to service. Yeah. I mean, I would much rather focus on 200 companies that each are willing to have a, a really significant spend in a very deep partnership than 2000 or 20,000 companies that represent that, that more, you know, uh, diverse, difficult sort of situation. Um, at some point you're actually talking about multiple products, right? Like there's only so far down market you can move before your product right. has to get pretty opinionated because you can't support 20,000 disparate implementations. And right. so right. we have some notional idea of being down market at some point, but that's pretty far in the future. And the reason why that's pretty far in the future is because we actually view it as a separate product. We're going to have knapsack for enterprise in perpetuity but ultimately, like, what does knapsack for for mid market or upper mid market companies look like? It's probably something that that takes a lot of the lessons learned at enterprise and applies them in a much more opinionated way to that middle market. If you could use some encouragement and support from fellow B two B SaaS founders, check out Champion Leadership Group. It is the ultimate resource for SaaS founders and C suite executives to continue to develop themselves scale their companies, and never walk alone on the journey. We're kicking off a brand new cohort in our Growth Accelerator Scale Up this month, and I would love for you to be a part of it. You've navigated the startup storms and emerged victorious. Now it's time to elevate from success to significance. It's a zero fluff, just hard-hitting strategies you need at the right time. It's really a key point to that whole thing. Right time. We focus on capital efficient growth, profitability that lasts, and achieving the kind of valuation that's not just impressive, but impactful. You'll gain access to a network of peers, custom growth map, and the kind of operational excellence that frees you up to focus on what really matters, whether that's in business and outside of business, because, you know, family matters. If you're ready to turn it up to 11, visit championleadership.com, where leaders evolve and companies transform. Apply to join the next cohort. Now is the time to scale up. Championleadership.com. Which makes a lot of sense because you know how the, the biggest and, and best companies in the world are doing it. And then you're able to take those uh, truly best practices and bake them into the solution that, that has those opinions. Exactly. And I think that that middle market is, is interesting, right? Because that is product-led. That is self-service. That is like, let me show you the pathway of how you can be successful in a design system that works for 90% of use cases. And like, let me make that 90% of use cases this really broad net that I can cast. That has yeah. a lot of appeal. And honestly, like lots of investors and VCs look for companies just very specifically like that because it is kind of a more trendy, modern way of thinking. But enterprise SaaS is still really, really viable, in especially in spaces where complexity matters. And this complexity and pain at scale is the biggest driving force of adoption for, for design systems in the world. That's great. Again, it goes back to, to really knowing 
you know, who your customers are and what that pain is and, and addressing it, you know, very, very specifically. Yep. And so I think really, that really it's, smart uh, decision. sorry, what did you say? I said really smart decision. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. I, I think that like we get some flack for it. Like I said, it, it's, it is funny to turn a bunch of people that want to give you money away because they don't fit your ICP. But that focus is really essential to us performing as a super small company. I mean, we're still a seed stage company, right? Like we have 12 employees or 13 employees, something like that. Um, and so to be able to go work with the biggest brands in the world as a little tiny company, you have to have that focus. Yeah, that's really smart. Well, another decision that, that you made was how you're gonna fund the company. Lots of different ways to do it. You could bootstrap, you could raise, you could do loans, you could factor AR. I mean, a hundred different ways to do that. I mean, even, you know, in your case, maybe you have clients that uh, are willing to pay for development, but, uh, but you took on capital and you're actually raising a series A now. What was the, the thought process uh, behind that? And you know, what were the, the implications? Yeah, so we actually started as an agency. And when we were an agency, we had a very different model. We, um, we built bespoke design systems for people. And, and what Knapsack in its first iteration was, was a toolkit for an agency to be able to build these design systems more efficiently. Um, and so, I mean, we had millions of dollars in revenue as, as an agency. And uh, uh, the real catalyst for us was COVID. And so, you know, COVID hit. And all of a sudden, all our agency work just just evaporated. Um, and so we'd been talking about productizing uh, this thing that was at the time called Bedrock, um, but ultimately became Knapsack. Um, but what really kind of put us over the edge for that was um, spending a bunch of focus time and a bunch of bench time on making what was a, a toolbox much, much more robust. And... Um, what happened is we got to the point that the agency work started to come back for five months after, you know, March of 2020. And we started to think that like, Hey, you know, there's a market for this. And not only is there a market for this, this is much more interesting and much more valuable than running an agency. And so then the choice was like, well, what do we do? Like we have millions of dollars in revenue from our agency. Do we just shut that down? didn't focus on the product? Do we try to do both at the same time? And we basically said that every example of a company that has tried to do both product and services has had some limited success with one of the two. And so we wanted to be committed to either being a services business that kept this toolbox going or to be a product company. And if we looked at a product company, we had the options to spin it off, sell our agency. We had the options to get funded. And ultimately, what we decided is we could probably survive off of what was in our bank accounts for about three months if we got some friends and family to, to contribute to us. And so we got some safe agreements in place with some friends and family, and we got enough operating capital that I was like, that's probably a big enough window for me to go raise money. And ultimately, the reason that we did that was twofold. Um, first, we believed the market was big enough. I mean, we were working with companies that were, were Fortune 50 companies as an agency. And so we're like, there is definitely demand for this and there's a market for it. Um, and secondly, we needed venture capital to be able to scale into that market. Now, yeah. the, the double-edged sword of venture capital is like, once you're on that train, it's real hard to get off. It's really hard to go back to being a bootstrapped company or to being a profitable organization. And usually you have to cut really deep to do it. And so we went in this um, 
with a very concentrated thought process on the reason why we're going venture is because we really do believe that this is a company that could change the way the world thinks about building digital products. And with that vision in mind, you need a lot of capital to get there. And that capital is essential to the speed of growth. If you're not able, or if we didn't have the capital and we needed to bootstrap it, we could probably get there, but it'd take us 10 plus years. And venture capital is a, um, yes, somewhat painful, somewhat you know devil's bargain to get you there more quickly, but it's also really, really exciting. Um, because it gives you the opportunity to go pursue this this vision and this dream. Now, of course, like it comes with the downside of like, look, you know, it's not entirely your company anymore. You have investors, you have people that you're responsible to. You, me, me as the CEO and my my co-founder Evan, like we have our our own bosses, which is representative of of a board of directors and a group of investors that we need to continue to have a relationship with in order to uh, continue to fund the company because we do spend more than we make. Um, and we, the reason why we spend more than we make is because we really believe in this opportunity and we found some great partners that believe in it with us. That's fantastic. What do you look for in those partners? How do you know when you have the, the right one? So uh, shout out to Sean Morani on this. Uh, uh, I'm very, very lucky that I found Sean. So Sean's the managing partner at Parade Ventures. And um, he was the first person that was was excited enough about Knapsack to give us a term sheet. and. Um, one of the things that Sean said, like I was a first time CEO, first time founder of a business like this, um, is he said, when you, you think about who you want in on this, so you're going to get a lot of people that are interested, especially when you get to more than 50% of your, your fundraising target. And once that happens, the, the sort of power dynamic flips. Instead of you as a founder going out hat in hand saying like, give me money, give me money, give me money. All of a sudden, people are going to say like, what does it take for me to get in? And he's like, you want to think about what does it take for me to get in before you have that 50% of your round done? What is the value that investor adds to your cap table? What is the thing that they can give you access to or they can get for you that you have a really hard time getting yourself? And be really, really ruthless about that. And that was some of the best advice I'd, I'd ever been given is, is like, how do you actually determine the value add of that investor to the cap table? Because if it's just money, there's plenty of people with money. Don't just take right, it for the money. Right. Take it because they add something that is otherwise impossible or very, very difficult for you to get. That is brilliant advice. Really, really solid. And so you, you take on investment and then right now raising the, the Series A, what does the, the future look like? What are you going to use that for? Yeah, I mean, there's still a lot of product to build, right? I mean, we're, we're at a point where we can confidently say like, hey, we got great sign of product market fit. Like we're probably there with the product we have today. But when you think about like the iteration in product, you want to kind of try to have like your priority one be like, how do I continue to serve my existing customers? And how do I make those customers like fanatical and super excited about my product? Yeah. And so there's this sort of core that I spend, you know, 70, 80% of our, our product funding on is that. But then there's this like 20 or 30% that widens that net. And usually that 20 or 30% comes pretty early in that fundraising process. So like we'll close the series A and then we'll make a bunch of new investments into widening the net of the types of customers that we serve really, really well with our product. Um, and of course we'll make a bunch of mistakes and we'll do a few things wrong and we'll need to have more user <laughs> conversations. And that's when you start to like, like fill in that, that gap, but you want to expand that net 
and you want to fill it. And I think that that's, that's how I think about funding for product. And there's so much stuff that we want to do. Um, there's things in the realm of AI that we talk a lot about. There's stuff in, you know, theming and systems of systems and all these big things in enterprise that are, are hot topics right now. There's um, this whole idea of composability that I find fascinating in the space of, of systems um, and, and specifically design systems. So all those are, are places where we have a point of view and we want to have funding to go help achieve those points of view in our product. Um, the second side of, of it is, is go-to-market, obviously, like the product on top of the product, right? And so when you have your go-to-market motion, you want to start to say, like, what does a sprinkle of scale look like? A dash of, of more. Um, yeah. And to see if you can figure out some way that you can predictably put money into your go-to-market machine and end up with more money out the other side. Um, now, just like every other startup company, like it feels like we reinvent that motion every few months. Uh, we certainly reinvent our pricing. We certainly reinvent um, a lot of our messaging. And it's a constant state of experiment experimentation and refinement. So experiment, refine, experiment, refine, experiment, refine. And the model that we have now is very unlikely to be the exact same go-to-market model we have a year from now, largely because we're going to take the current model, which works pretty well with a really small team. We're going to start to run into some scale issues at you know whatever our next benchmark is. And things are going to fall apart. And we're going to need to refine and redesign that model to continue to keep this business scaling. And that's kind of my job as the CEO. It's like, you know, everybody talks about founder CEO in kind of like three buckets, right? It's like, give me the vision, get the people that can execute that vision and don't run out of money. <laughs> and so <laughs> like beyond those three things, one of the things that I really see as a part of that strategy bucket probably is like, what are the things you need to be refining or thinking about that are likely to break? Um, and this, this other co-founder that I worked with for a while, her name is Astrid. She gave me another great piece of advice. She's like, you know, I, I think about the strategy side of being a CEO as, as juggling. And when you're juggling, you have a bunch of balls and some of those balls are tennis balls and some of those balls are glass balls. And your job as a CEO is to try to understand what the glass balls are and substitute them with tennis balls as quickly as you can. And so hmm. the, the, the rub on that being, you know, you drop a tennis ball and it bounces back up. You drop yeah. a glass ball and it shatters. And so how do you, you take your time to try to think about what doesn't scale, what's going to break, what isn't going to be true for the next stage of your business and try as hard as you can to, to take those glass balls and substitute them with tennis balls. That is really, really good advice. I hadn't heard that before. I think that, that's a great analogy. Yeah, Astrid, okay. I hope you listen to this because I, I use that all the time. <laughs> so what has been the greatest challenge uh, in your role? I mean, you said first-time CEO, startup. What have been the, the greatest challenges for you? There is like this weird sort of, of micro to macro or, or like, you know, long-term vision to short-term reality that is um, a constant push-pull with me, right? I tend to be the kind of person that thinks like a couple of years in the future, right? That's where my brain plays best is, is thinking about what we're going to do, what we're going to achieve, having this like vision. And that works really great for investors. And like, I'm pretty good at raising money because I can articulate that really well. And I can tell a type of story that resonates with people that says like, yeah, I believe in that team and that guy that can do this and make that thing happen. Um, but then there's like when you actually have to sell it to a customer, right? And you can't necessarily just say like, hey, in two years, this is going to be really great software. So you should totally buy it now. Um, <laughs> right. Like that, that's a part of the conversation maybe. 
at, at the right level, but there's definitely this like really practical, like what gets people in the door? What gets people interested and excited about what you have to say that is really tangible in your product today? And that is a, a difficult mental model or leap to go through is to, to one, in, one minute be talking about how we're going to revolutionize the way the products are built for every major enterprise in the world to another being like, yes, what we're all about is docs designing code next to each other. Um, and you can kind of connect the two, especially if you understand the story. But that bridge is really hard to articulate in a concise marketing message, in a concise sales deck, in a way that our customers can really understand. And uh, one of the pieces of advice that I got recently uh, was from from Lindsay Jones, who works at, at Knapsack. And she said, you know, when you, uh, uh, when you say we're so much more than X, that thing is what you actually do. <laughs> And so when we're so much more than a design system, well, like what that means is that Knapsack actually does design systems. And so being honest about with yourself about where the product is, but also still be able to like connect that to that future vision. That's hard. Um, yeah. And then of course people and all this other stuff like that, that is your typical startup chaos, right? Like the, uh, the way I like to describe it is like, you know, making a startup is like, like moving a, a mountain one shovel at a time. Um, and if you, if you're just yeah. sitting there with a shovel and you're scooping dirt, you can scoop dirt as fast as you could ever possibly want to, um, and still not move that mountain before you run out of cash. It's all about like, where does that exact right shovel strike go that causes a landslide? And figuring that out is real difficult. Um, and you get it wrong a lot. And you just hope that you have really great partners and really great people that help you realize that it's wrong super, super fast. So you can put your shovel somewhere else. Yeah. yeah. So has resilience played a role in, in your success up to this point? Yeah, it's <laughs> funny. I, I don't tell this story all that much. But like when we were when we were doing our first pre-seed round, and you know, I said that like we got that friends and family and that safe round put together and everything like that. Like, uh, I was funding the company out of my own personal bank account and watching that cash balance very quickly drop to zero. And then watching like most of my credit cards taking care of, of every single day-to-day -day expense in my life while also having two young children, uh, one of which was a newborn. Um, it was to be honest, completely terrifying um, where you realize that, that like, your house is on the line, like your, your credits yeah. on the line, your financial future for you and your family is on the line. And if you, this fundraise doesn't happen, like, what do I tell not just my wife, but like the people that believed in me enough to join this like early fledgling company. And that is a, a, a demon, an existential threat that like is, is right behind you. It feels like really often. And there's a stress to that and just a background noise that can feel overwhelming. Um, and it's been fun. Like this podcast has been great because I got to talk about like a lot of other advice that I've gotten <laughs> as a founder. Um, one of the things that the CEO of Remitly told me um, when we were really early on, and I'm, I'm not even sure he'd remember the conversation, but he said, double down on the things in your life that give you peace or harmony. Um because that's how you push back against that existential dread of like the end of runway is coming or, or, you know, 
your competitor is coming or your market opportunity is closing. Like all those things you think about them every single day. And the only way to like have the will to get up and go to work the next day is by taking those moments of peace and just recognizing that you're you're on a journey and it's stressful and it's crazy. Um, nobody would do this job if they were actually really sane. You know, like the the, the success of <laughs> of startups is tiny, like less than than one percent make any sort of like really serious ten x meaningful return. Uh, something yeah. like fifteen percent end up in a space that is like okay. Um, it maybe was worth uh, starting the company, or or like it was slightly more than you could have made in industry, um, and then a whole lot go to zero, right. um, and all that time and effort and and lost opportunity is is really present, right? And you think about that a lot as a founder, um, where you know I I left a job where I was making somewhere in the neighborhood of five times as much than my starting salary at Knapsack. And wow. that is is insane on its face, right? Like I had all this incredible career, like upward trajectory in, in every possible way in my life. And I'm going to like disregard all that to go chase this funny dream with uh, a co-founder that, um, uh, you know, knew that he couldn't build it himself, right? Um, and so that yeah. that is nuts. Um, and when I say it, I'm like, wow, like you idiot, what were you ever thinking? <laughs> um, but there's so many things that are a benefit to that, that are, are hard to pin down that just give me that energy. Right. And I double down on those things every day. That's good. That's good. Well, so I mean, you had some great, great advice and what role have mentors played in your success? I tend to surround myself with them. Um, I'm a really consensus driven thinker. It comes from, you know, a background in organizing and a background in, in lots of other things around, you know, I, I like to have, I like to be able to go around the company or go around my advisor group and get a set of internal opinions and a set of external opinions. And then I form my own opinion based on, on what those people say. Right. And it doesn't mean that I'm like trying to make everybody happy. It's, it's actually very different than that. So I'm trying to get a bunch of different points of view. And so what advisors and mentors are able to do is they're able to give you a point of view that maybe you hadn't considered, maybe you hadn't thought of that oftentimes will make a lot of sense and guide your thinking. And it leads to better decision-making. Now, sometimes that can feel overwhelming. And if you're the kind of person that, that um, when you get too many opinions, you just sort of shut down and you have a hard time making a choice. Um, it's probably not the way to go, but at least for me, I love my ability to go to, you know, the person that leads go to market, the person that leads ops, the person that leads product, get their take and then go share that take with a bunch of people external to the company and say, what do you think? Um, and I think that the, the kind of relationship that I like to have with advisors and mentors is one of almost like consummate friendship, right? Like we, Yes, there's a financial transaction. Yes, there's there's probably like some equity or some some hourly rate that I'm paying them. But I want them to give me their honest, trustworthy advice. And so that's why my first goal with any new mentor is to actually befriend them. Um, because your friends are the people that are gonna tell you that like you're in a bad relationship or right, that right. you know, you're messing up your life because you're not focused on the right things. And that's the kind of relationship with mentors that you need to foster. Cause if you don't have that, ultimately you'll get people that are unwilling to share their take. And it's that brutal, hard to hear, oftentimes nearly cruel advice that helps you make better decisions. Yeah. 
I'm the same way. I love having different perspectives and, and they help me see things in a different way. So I see it this way and they just, they, they turn it around and go, well, have you thought about looking at it this way? I've never seen that. Has that always been there? Yeah. I mean, it's also hard to ignore the, the group therapy aspect of it as well. Um, yeah. It's one of the things I love about CEO groups. I mean, they always fall apart. Like I think I've been a part of seven of them at this point, none of which are actually active today. Um, but the hardest part about CEO groups is, is getting a bunch of really busy people to, to take time every week or every month to talk with each other. But those conversations, even as one-offs are super valuable. Just talk to another person that feels the same way you do, that faces those same threats, that feels that same pressure and that same like demon like over their shoulder. Like that's that's energy giving when you realize that you're not alone in this. Um, being a founder is so isolating, so isolating. Yeah. Um, and figuring out ways to push back against that isolation, even, even as some like random anecdote once in a while makes you feel a lot better makes you feel like you're not the only one that's that's like terrified that uh uh you know sales drop next quarter and my runway gets cut what am i gonna what am i gonna do um right and i'm in the very fortunate position of feeling pretty good about the future of this company feeling strong about my upcoming raise feeling good about the direction that we're headed as a business um but it wasn't always that way and it's great to be able to give a little energy to other people instead of necessarily feel like I need to take it just so that I can, I can want to sit down at my desk and go to work tomorrow. That's awesome. Yeah. It's always a, a balance of, of give and take and we need both of those. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's great. Well, where can people learn more about you and about Knapsack online? Yeah. So head on over to knapsack.cloud. Um, from there, there's lots of links to resources, um, things like our YouTube channel. I also have a podcast. The design systems podcast is, uh, you know, one of the the major podcasts in, in the area of design. Um, you can check that out at the um, at designsystemspodcast.com. Um, you know, I'm mostly I'm active on LinkedIn these days in terms of social media. Uh, so you can you can follow me, find me there. Um, and always happy to have a conversation about design, engineering, and everything in between. Outstanding. We'll make sure and link all of that in the show notes. And I have to ask one last question. You said you changed the name from Bedrock to Knapsack. How did that come about? How did you, you know, Bedrock, where'd that come from and why Knapsack? Yes. Yeah, so, yeah, when you, you do that initial search for like who has the same name for the same product, you know, you get as far as you can, usually with Google, when you don't have any money to pour into anything, right? And so, you know, we looked around for who had the name Bedrock and we didn't really find much until we launched it. And then about, a month later, we're like, oh, hey, there's this company in Belgium, Belgium that is like this design company that is using Bedrock for some sort of like systematic approach to, to design. Then what's funny is we changed the name and I never followed up. I'd be curious to see if they still exist. But we wrote them a note and we're like, hey, um, we're launching a SaaS product with this name. What do you think? And they're like, we think you should change the name. <laughs> <laughs> and so we, uh, <laughs> we said, yeah, all right we'll go ahead and do that. And so, uh, it's actually funny, like knapsack fits us a lot better. Um, the knapsack problem is a, a common problem in, in mathematics and computer science yes. about given a finite space and weight, uh, how do you optimize for, for the volume of your, your, um, your system in this case, your knapsack. Um, and it was actually first, first like put out into the world by this person named, uh, Tobias dancing. And uh, uh, we're from Portland, like this company's origin story is in Portland, Oregon. 
and uh, uh, Tobias actually lived here for a time. Um, and uh, we actually took our own design system and named it Toby uh, as sort of an homage like to, to our origins. Love that. Well, Chris, thanks for being on SAS Fuel. It was a great conversation. Awesome. Hey, thanks for having me. It's great chatting with you, Jeff. Thanks again, Chris, for coming on the show and sharing your journey and insights. You know, I love how you have aligned the organization and get everyone on the same page. It's a fantastic solution. You guys check out Knapsack for sure, especially if you're in the SaaS world, which you know, if you're not, why are you listening? Now, we do have other people besides SaaS that listen, but you can streamline your process as well. But bringing those three things together, so important. Very cool. Well, you can learn more about Chris at knapsack.cloud. And of course, check him out on social as well. All links, highlights, resources, and full show notes are all available at sasfuel.com. And be sure to check us out on YouTube. Full episodes, shorts, training, outtakes, all kinds of fun stuff on there. So YouTube and you know, leaders help each other. So do that by sharing it with a fellow SaaS leader. They will think that you are way ahead of the curve and the team and I really appreciate it. You know, because there's you know, all these blizzards and frigid weather everywhere, even here in Texas, you know, teens last weekend and crazy cold. Everyone who shares this week gets a snowball snack maker. Just scoop up some snow and it turns it into a flavored snow cone. Just watch out for the yellow kind. Avoid that. But join us Thursday on our SaaS Fuel Expert Series where my guest is Janet Giesen. She runs a consulting practice focused on helping B2B tech companies launch new SaaS products and initiatives. She works with startups and big companies launching new products or product extensions. So if you want to go behind the scenes of a $50 million product launch, this is the ticket. And next Tuesday, we have founder Chris Cabrera, trailblazing founder and CEO of Exactly. Chris has steered the company to the forefront of the RevOps industry, outmaneuvering some pretty significant giants along the way. We'll be talking about that experience and also about his new book called The Unicorn Fallacy, Ditch the Growth or Die Herd and Build a Company that Lasts. So I will see you next time. Stay warm out there. And as always, enjoy the journey. Thanks for listening to SAS Fuel. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned, are available at sasfuel.com. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com slash sasfuel. We'll be sure to read these out on future episodes. Let's go!